0: Welcome back to another episode of Bite-Sized Virtue. This is episode two of season three. And much the same as last time, I'm joined by a friend. The first episode, of course, I was joined by my friend Colin. I used an excerpt from a discussion we had for the Scouting Stuff You Should Know podcast, the other podcast that I do, which kind of happened to relate to the topic that I wanted to introduce. I mean, obviously, we're going to be talking about spirituality, the ultimate Virtue, and how it relates to real-world philosophy, but I wanted to use this whole concept of the anima technica vacua as the main mode of analysis of the virtue. And so uh, my friend Paul graciously agreed to join me. Those of you um, listening, those of you who are joining us on the Bite sized Virtue segments for the first time may recall Paul from... Um, the last round that we did and the whole idea of bite-sized virtue is that I Pick one of the eight virtues that are that have, you know, been constant features of the Ultima lore since Ultima 4 And try and relate it to real-world philosophy and I'm actually kind of Sorry before I go into that. I should add too that. I do this twice uh, a year roughly I do it once Um, through the Advent and Christmas season, and then again in the Lent and Easter seasons. So um, the Advent and Christmas ones are, um, there's not as many of them because that's a shorter season overall. But I'm kicking myself because, and I'm going to get Catholic here for a minute, now that we've started Advent, we've started a new year, a new liturgical year in the church. And each liturgical year, has a theme. Uh, the Pope chooses a theme for the liturgical year. So the liturgical year that just closed was, and you may have heard this um, in in the media, it got a lot of coverage actually, the year of mercy. That's the uh, That was the previous liturgical year. The theme for this liturgical year that just started is justice. And so I'm actually kind of kicking myself for not picking justice as the topic but on the other hand I spent a lot of time delving into the idea of justice um, I believe actually last Lent and Easter so I figure I got myself covered there and what I really wanted to do was dive into the idea of spirituality now spirituality in Ultima is it's a fairly broad thing so it's The idea is that it draws equally on the three foundational principles, truth, love, and courage. And the definition of spirituality, as it's presented in Ultima, is a two-part thing. A, it is the concern with one's inner being and how one deals with the principles of truth, love, and courage. But it is also B, the awareness of the love that unites one's own inner being to those around one. And I know that this gets a lot of discussion. Uh, certainly we, like whenever Richard Garriott talks about it and when a lot of people comment on it, spirituality in Ultima isn't really tied to any particular religion and, um, isn't really even tied to any particular sense of a deity. That's always been one notable thing about the philosophy in Ultima is that it's there, there's no, real deity over top of it um which all right not so much that i want to delve into that but there's a concept and um in a lot of the other podcasts i do listen to it's really been getting a lot of play and it actually does relate also to spirituality in the ultima sense and it's this idea of what is called the anima technica vacua and i think that might be also something that i can maybe somehow relate to some of what we were talking about with the traffic there at least i'm going to try i don't really have great notes on this and i certainly didn't know uh that that's how we were going to start so i'm going to try um first off definitions what is the anima technica vacua well if you know your latin and i don't but fortunately i know this much um anima Basically, means the soul, technica means technical, and vacua means vacuous or empty. So allowing for the fact that Latin and English kind of don't always run in the same direction, anima technica vacua can be read in English as the empty technical soul. And it's a phrase coined by Hans Urs von Balthasar um, really great philosopher of, uh, I believe, the last century, um, and he used it to kind of describe certain things that have cropped up in modernity.
1: It's it's funny because um, as uh, as you probably recall, is I was when you first suggested this topic of spirituality, I'm like, eh and then I kind of thought about it, like during a conversation or whatever, which, you know, lasts like 10, 15 minutes, or whatever. I'm like, you know what? Like the challenge of it kind of interested me because, um, I'm, I don't consider myself a spiritual person. Um, but like, I, and I, I guess maybe because I don't really consider myself that much of a pious person. Um, and that kind of challenged me to think about what well, the, you know, the what the relationship between spirituality and piety is. Um, there's certainly a distinction there. Yeah, and it's it it, it to me it, it seems like that a big part of spirituality is focused on who you are fundamentally, um, from what you do, but I kind of came to the conclusion that a part of spirituality At least how I'm understanding, and I'm very much could be way off on this. Is what is asking yourself what do you love, and what you love is sort of where your passion is. And so, I think that um, when you speak of spirituality, you kind of, you you in some ways you're discussing kind of a neutral subject that could be good or bad. It's almost like a tool. Not, uh, not necessarily a technique, maybe, but I, I don't know if I necessarily want to go to that route either. But um, I can think of healthy spirituality and and unhealthy spirituality, and you know, like unhealthy spirituality. I think that we would all basically agree with something something like Nazism, um, National Socialism, uh, Fascism. Um, I would argue that um, the people who are fighting for ISIS have a very, very unhealthy spirituality. I would um, argue that a lot of the West has a very unhealthy spirituality. Mother Teresa kind of hinted at this when she, um, and, you know, this might be a little bit, um, I don't, I couldn't tell you where this quote is from, or whatever, but where um, she compared the spirituality of India and America, and she said that no, no. I mean, India is not poor. America is the one that's poor, and it's um whether I, I I'm not sure if i has with that um, but uh, it, it's well. I think I mean,
0: in some ways, though, I think she does hit the nail on the head, and this is kind of what the whole concept of the anima technica vacua is getting at, because really, it's about. It's about this. It's just fundamentally, it's about an emptiness. And it's an emptiness that's basically exacerbated by not just technology, you know, technology itself is just a tool, but the use of that technology and sort of the very frenetic pace that it gives to our lives here in the West, right? There's no... Everything in the Animatech and Evacua is basically about the conflation of thought and action, right? It's... Okay, now I'm cruising Facebook. Oh, that's a neat link. Cool. I'm going to read this story and then two paragraphs down. Oh, hey, that's a neat quote. I'm totally going to tweet that out. Oh, and then, oh, while I'm tweeting that, I see I've got a direct message from my friend here. Oh, he's got a question for me. Well, I'm going to answer that. Oh, geez, this question reminds me that I have to make lunch plans with so such and such and so and so. And it's sort of this this frantic pace to our modern technologically enabled lives that really it's all just, you know, like I say, the distinction between thought and action really starts to blur. Are we really even pausing to 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 think about actions? Are we really taking actions in any meaningful sense, or are we just kind of jumping from one stray thought to the next? And I think, you know, in other places in the world where... And I mean, yes, like not to say that there aren't huge problems like rampant, horrible poverty, for example, but at the same time, it's in those places where just you don't have that franticness that you do, people do have more time to contemplate, right? They're not simply jumping from one thought to the next. They're not simply jumping from one notification to the next there's actually the opportunity for contemplation and yes for for prayer and reflection and all those things too um and out of that there's sort of a deeper sense of connection to ourselves you know uh,
1: no I, i understand that um okay two two stories uh, well related stories or whatever that kind of popped into my head when you mentioned that. One is the first, there's a very strong criticism with a lot of the online community right now where, you know, and this is probably more so right now for, for the social justice warriors, I'm, I'm putting bunny quotes there, about they retreat uh, something and they think they're doing some kind of good or whatever. Um, you know the the Facebook Warriors where you share you share an article and you think you actually you you know oh I did my good deed for the day kind of thing, um and it doesn't really do anything or whatever it's not really you're not really working at making the world a better place or whatever, it's just you we share the story, and it's a lot of you know based a lot on a sentimentality and stuff like that and that's how the problem with that kind of mentality was saying that, oh, I'm a community activist, when I'm just re- retreating this, or whatever, like, you're not actually doing anything, you're not building an actual community um, or, you know, enacting any kind of change or whatever. Um, yeah, there's a second kind of related issue, and this is um, a really interesting uh, somebody that I've kind of in the past year or so, I've kind of been paying a lot more attention to do, um I think a thinker, and I'm going to horribly mispronounce his name or whatever, um, and forgive me for that, is Slavoj Zeisik. All right. i I've, I've watched over the past year, or so quite a few of his uh, videos on YouTube about him and, and like him speaking some of that. And what he has argued, um, particularly for the left, because he's kind of like a, a self-described, I think, I think he self-describes as a communist or whatever, but... Utterly fascinating for me. I kind of like. I kind of feel like a kindred, kindred spirit with him, um, in a lot of ways. Um, he says that people need to stop acting. They need to stop and think, and that's what the next major thing that the left, I think, in general, he says, needs to do. And this is like exactly what, um, what's happened in the American election when Trump won or whatever. And I, I was like, I was pretty. I was shocked. Like I was. I was like, I wasn't in, I wasn't like, oh my God, my life's so blah blah. I was just shocked because I, I, you know, from everything I was hearing, um, you know, the polls that day was coming up, that, like Hillary, Hillary's up it by like eight points, 12 points or whatever. i it's like, I thought he was down the water. And apparently a lot of people in like his camp, his staff or something, thought he was done too. And then he comes in and it's just like, wow, he won the electoral college. Yep. Interesting. Like, um, and it's just like, and even now for the the consumers, I, I have quite a few friends who are part of the Never Trump crowd, um, which I think I could perfectly understand why you wouldn't want him in. Now that um, he's in or whatever, like we, we ha- you have to deal with him for the next four years at least, possibly eight years. So you really have to think, and this is part of what appealed me with uh, Maxine Bernier or whatever, um, is that what can be done to build a coalition or whatever, build a better society and what we think is going to lead to better outcomes. And it's not always just acting, you know, um, from the gut or whatever. It's really thinking about how we can really build this and, like, really getting at the... um, issues of why certain things happen. This is where, for me, the, the um, obviously this analysis is going to continue to go on, whatever, is it's really interesting for me, um, you know, a lot of people saying that, you know, racism and bigotry and homophobia, um, uh, you know, were, fueled the Trump campaign. But then, again, not really. Like, there, there was past probably some of that or whatever. And sexism sexism should be thrown in there too, but I mean, you're not really you you're dismissing any legitimate criticisms that Trump and the idea of Trump might have had. Which I think that there's plenty of good things to criticize Clinton about, um, and what she would have enacted or whatever, or likely would have enacted something. So I mean, like it's 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 like you you're not even. You're being lazy, intellectually lazy, um, kind of discussing this or whatever. And so it's just like, oh, like, you know, Trump is a sexist or probably is. But I mean, um, I think we're wandering
0: a little off topic, but you did say something. And I thought this was interesting because you're right. Most of the polls didn't predict Trump, but there were a couple that did. And I can't remember which polling group this was, but I remember hearing one of the main people behind it talking. And their methodology was not just to simply ask people what direction their own vote was going in or what direction, you know, who they were voting for or who they were contemplating voting for or whatever else have you. That was their first question. But then their follow-up was, okay, now who are your neighbors? Who's your neighbor voting for? And it was through that that they were able to, you know, I think they actually did predict a Trump victory and they were one of the only pollsters that did so. And gosh, I wish I could remember the name of the outfit. But that whole approach that they took has stuck with me. That question or that, that explanation of their method has resonated with me. Not just asking the person themselves that they're talking to, but then a follow-up question. Okay, now what's your neighbor doing? How is your neighbor going to vote? Because and you know kind of getting back to this idea of spirituality and this anima technica vacua or even getting back to the idea of mother teresa right like what is mother teresa's main suggestion for changing the world it's not anything major you know it was it's not you know okay i mean some people have given the great advice find your calcutta and that's very true right like you know find The place where you can, by living out your vocation, affect the lives of the maximum number of people in a positive way. But beyond that, what is Mother Teresa's great message? If you want to love, the, or if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. And I think it's these two concepts, family and neighbor, and not just family and neighbor but loving your family and being connected to your neighbor enough that you can actually say, oh yeah, my neighbor, he's totally supporting this candidate. I think those are like that. Those two things are really the lived ideal of spirituality because it's all well and good to contemplate this stuff in abstract terms. It's all well and good to actually, you know, read philosophy texts and everything else. But especially... (sighs) You know, and I mean even just going back to how the games define it, spirituality isn't just an exercise of thought and it shouldn't be. I mean we should actually f- kind of be afraid of that because thought in and of itself shouldn't be the ideal, right? I mean the ideal should be knowledge, wisdom, truth. But at the you know more than that, the practice of spirituality is, love like you said and it's to be connected to other people and to love those other people even if you have differences with those other people and that is i think the real horror of this whole concept of anima technica vacuo you know we talk about like the facebook bubble right we talk about how um, people left and right kind of get caught up in these news bubbles where they're really only seeing stories that are stroking their own egos and reaffirming the opinions they already hold. And a lot of that's just the result of you know algorithms, right? Facebook's algorithms right. say, "Oh, hey, you liked this. Hey, you commented on this. Hey, you clicked through to this article. Well, I'm going to show you
1: more yes, of the same stuff." No.
0: But um, well, and I mean, you know, people can also curate their own lists, but
1: well, you know, I mean. I mean you know Facebook and like Google have been kind of caught red-handed I think, with, like, a, you know they're caught up the hand of the cookie job
0: well with yes certain,
1: certain things about like you know um, like and you know Twitter's getting pretty bad for like banning people and stuff like that um, well
0: yeah, and I'm not I'm not talking about that like I say I'm just talking about you know all of these services are still, they're driven by algorithms. And I mean, yes, we've had evidence before and we've had claims made before that the algorithms are being manipulated, but still fundamentally there are these algorithms. They run underneath them. It's not particularly different than what drives, you know, Google ads. I mean, good gosh, I did like one lookup on blurb.com to get some pricing on a particular photo book layout. And now Every time I click through to an ad, uh, to a site that I've got whitelisted in my ad blocker, all I see are adverts for Blurb, which I don't really mind because I've used the service before and I like them. But still, you know, there's an algorithm there,
1: yeah.
0: and it's it's the same on Facebook, right? The suggested posts that Facebook throws your way, the uh, the recommended tweets or the promoted tweets that Twitter throws your way, all of this stuff is just algorithms running in the background and it's based on what you interact with and it's based on what you like or you favor or what you retweet or you comment on where you click through and it just shows you tries to show you more of the stuff because it figures well hey this is where your interests are and again yes those can be manipulated and they have been in the past but that's still generally how they operate and I think that's kind of I mean again that's it's partly a cause it's partly a symptom but it's just this it all feeds into this very modern or I guess maybe postmodern practice of you know we're just we have a thought we have an action and they just blur together and we don't really stop to ever know and that's i think too that's another big part of loving someone is to stop and know, to contemplate and to know the other person, right? To, to actually begin to understand them as a person and not just as, you know, someone who agrees with me or doesn't. All right, I'm going to cut it off there. So um, we will continue that discussion most likely next week. Although we do also have some contributions from Deathblade Dragon, Deathblade, I haven't had a chance yet to listen to the complete audio that you've submitted, but uh, I will. And if it turns out that that's a good fit for next week, then maybe we'll switch over to a Deathblade Dragon's contributions. This is this is more interesting to me because, of course, you know, previously I've really had to uh, to reach out to people to see if they want to contribute to these discussions, and now we have people submitting thoughts on their own which I really like like that's a great thing so I'm really looking forward to listening to the complete um, audio that Deathblade sent in and working it into a future episode whether that's next week or a few weeks down the road at any rate again thank you for listening tonight we will be back next week with another bite-sized virtue reflection and until then be virtuous